Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission is to help anybody out there that's thinking of starting a business do just that. Equally, if you've started a business and are struggling, maybe you need a little bit of inspiration and knowledge. And we hope by interviewing some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and change makers, that you'll get the knowledge you need to become the person you want and turn your business into that dream company. I personally have started 17 companies from scratch and have invested in over 65 startups. I left school at 15 with near zero education and was able to retire at 40. When I sat down and analyzed how I did it, I discovered a secret. It was all luck. So in each episode, I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, no matter what you're building, shipping or thinking, without luck, it ain't gonna work. Each week, I will discuss with my guests this theory and test it and see if luck is a skill as I feel that it is and if it's possible to pass it on to the next generation of entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy our episode this week. My guest today is Deborah Khan. She is a media entrepreneur and the founder of Being Patient. Her focus is to redefine health media by creating single subject platforms around a specific long-term illness. Deborah has interviewed many of the world's leaders and CEOs during her tenure as a journalist. And she was appointed to the board of directors of the Family Caregiving Alliance in January 2020. Deborah once interviewed me when she worked at the Wall Street Journal, so it's an honour for me to now interview her and to hear her story of how she became a purpose-driven entrepreneur. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. It's really wonderful to see you again. Well, I always like to start off the podcast by asking this simple question of what does success mean to you? You know, that's a really interesting um, question to ask, and I think I would have had a different answer uh, depending on which decade of my career I had been embarking on. Um, I was, um, my last job for a big company, as you know, was at the Wall Street Journal. And um, as I was working there, um, I, it was a, I've always been assigned very entrepreneurial um, roles, uh, you know, prior to the journal. Um, I'd been hired by Thompson Reuters to launch Reuters Insider, which is the proprietary financial news channel um, on the Icon Terminal. Um, and then I moved to the journal, and the journal hired me to build the video operation in Asia. Um, so, you know, I was I got pretty good. At, you know, there have been a number of entrepreneurial roles that I've had over my career. So I got pretty good at launching things. And... I have to admit, like when I was at the journal, it did occur to me that I was always launching these products for these bigger, you know, these big companies. And what would it look like uh, if I did it on my own? And, you know, I realized that I had really mastered what it took to succeed in the context of a big company and being a team player and building a team. And I loved that, but I was craving something more. So when you ask me, how do I define success today, I really felt um, I needed to do something with more purpose, number one, um, and more meaning to me personally, um, and in the context of um, something that was launched, that was put on this planet 100% because of me. You know, I'm grateful for all of the great, the big companies I worked for, but I really felt this calling to say, what can Deborah Khan do on her own by herself without anyone else, um, you know, giving me a push? It was just solely on this planet because I, I put it on the planet. And so do you think that success, the metric of success has changed for you over time? Was it at one point, I mean, working for the Wall Street Journal or, or, or Bloomberg on these things, was, was that your measure of success and, and now it's different? Is that challenge of, of doing something on your own? Is that the new measure of what success is? Well, I just think you, you, you know, you start out in your career and, you know, it's really exciting to work for big companies. You know, I, I 
worked for, you know, I started in Hong Kong at TVB and then I moved to Star TV and those were, I was a broadcast anchor and that was really exciting because uh, I had a great job and I was covering stories throughout Asia and interviewing really exciting people. And it was, um, you know, and at that time, if you asked me what defines success, it was probably moving from job to job, climbing the ladder, you know, and with every job, I got more responsibility. Um, I, you know, I, I segued into management. Um, you know, at the journal, I was running a whole video operation and a team. I had my own team. Um, so, so, you know, in the conventional sense, that was success. I was climbing a ladder of sorts and I loved it. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't crave really anything else at the time until, um, personally, something happened in my own life where my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and I started to look for information uh, to help my family and myself cope with this diagnosis. And I was really appalled at what was available to people. Um, and so I felt really drawn by this problem. It was, it, it was really weird. It was not like I was intending on resigning from my job. But the more I dug, the more I realized that there was a real information problem that existed on longer-term health conditions. And I, the more I scratched the surface and the more I dug, I realized that it was going to take a journalist to sort this out. And I felt very drawn by this in you know, both a personal and professional sense. Um, and so I kind of started on that path while I was at the journal. And I kept going and I, I, and I was just finally drawn to it where I thought, you know what, I feel like life is calling me in this direction. And I did something that surprised a lot of people and it even really surprised me. I quit my job and I, you know, you could talk to anyone at the journal. They were really surprised. I loved my job. It wasn't like I was looking to leave or I was complaining a lot. Uh, you know, it was really the top of my career that I decided to make this major life change. Mm. Well, I think it's uh, it's not an easy decision to make such a big big change, but it sounds to me like you, you found a very big purpose, something that really means something to you. Now, just for the audience listening, I will put in the link in the comments a very moving video that Deborah's done about her journey, which I definitely recommend you listen to. But maybe tell our listeners, was was it just that calling came and that, that redefined your, your, your new direction? Well, it was, it was really... Um how do I describe it? I, you know, I was just, I wanted to know, you know, when your mom is diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease, you want to know how far away are they from a cure? What are they looking for? I mean, I didn't know anything about Alzheimer's disease. You know, I was just, we were, as a family, we were thrown into this and it was, you know, it was my mom all of a sudden started forgetting one too many times the codes um, to our house alarm, which we haven't changed since I was a child or, you know, her ATM card was getting eaten three times in one week because she couldn't remember the number. Her her number processing is what went first. And, you know, I remember the day that she got the diagnosis. And my sister called me and I was at work and told me. And it was, you know, it really just is when you when you have a confirmed diagnosis, you feel helpless and, because you know it's a disease without a, a cure. So it sent me on this journey um, I started to call researchers around the world and asking that, you know, I'd read a research report and, and I'd call them and say, you know, can you explain this to me? Um, my mom has Alzheimer's. I work for the journal, but I'm calling on a personal level. And I found that there was a lot of information out there that was so useful, but it, was, it didn't exist in any one place. And I think the calling was that how unjust it was that people live with um, long-term illnesses like Alzheimer's for, for a decade or more, and they don't have an accurate, good source of information. And as a journalist, I was able to uncover, um, one, you know, it was an information problem. No one was explaining to them the scientific research in a language that they could understand. But two, it was a connectivity problem. Like patients and caregivers felt extremely cut off from the expert community of doctors and researchers. So we really like, it just felt very drawn by, can I move the needle on this? Because it, it's a problem. And I could, I could see it through my own family's circumstances that it was going to be, it, it was a problem. And I really felt like 
I had the skills to really tackle this one. I think I think your story is very interesting. I think it's uh, I, I guess for my listeners out there that are either thinking of becoming, let's say, entrepreneurs, and I, I, I see you as an entrepreneur. You're you're you've got your own media business, and on 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 top of I guess you know this this very important purpose uh, being patient. Uh, platform that you that you you're building and I think you know for a lot of people out there that want to start a business often they're thinking about an idea and what to do I'm, I'm wondering you know from from your, your process perspective so of course this this situation happened with your mother you you realize that there's not enough information out there to help people understand what's really going on including yourselves uh, and so uh, you you decide to to to, to start this being patient uh, platform, but is it is it an overnight thing? Was it you know a lot of agonizing? You know, quitting a job that you yeah. had is not easy. You know that you you you. Not easy. Yeah, for the yeah. for the listeners out there, I mean, Deborah and I met. Deborah interviewed me uh, years ago in Singapore. We were at a startup conference, but it was a big deal. You know, you 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 had a very high profile position, well respected. I mean, giving all that up must have not been an easy decision, and 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 even now must must bring its you know moments where you you must miss it. I do miss it, but I'm still using my journalism skills. You know, mm. I interview people every week, and I, you know, I was pretty realistic. I think the thing that I did do right, I mean, I'm, you know, I've done a lot of things wrong, but the thing that I did do right was I admitted to myself right off the bat what I didn't know. And I thought really hard and quickly how do I fill in the gaps of knowledge that's of, of things I don't know? So, for example, because I've always worked in the context of a really big organization, a big company, a lot of things were taken care of for me. So I didn't have to worry about building audience. The audience already existed. I mean, what a luxury, right? Um, I you know, didn't have to worry about the social media component to things because someone, we had a whole team of people who did that for us. You know, I, So I didn't have to worry about how to build uh, audience and metrics per se, because that was all part of what what a big company gives you. So I realized really quickly what I didn't know. And I thought to myself, well, first of all, you know, while I was at the journal, I spent about eight months researching on my own time um, where the problems were with information um, along a longer term health um, condition. And I thought, you know, so I spent a lot of time on, on my hours off interviewing patients and caregivers, primary care doctors and researchers to really understand where they felt the problems were. And that actually became the fundamental base of how we built being patient. We, we took the problems and we created a new formula to address, to address the problem. Um, so the second thing I did was I went to work for another startup who um, they built single, it was called News Deeply, and they built single subject topics along niche news, um, news topics. So, for example, um, Syria Deeply, Water Deeply. Um, and it just so happened, I knew the woman who founded the company, and she said, would you ever consider coming and starting Women and Girls? Because the Gates Foundation actually was interested in funding a platform on women and girls in the developing world along education, crisis and conflict, and um, um, health. And I said, you know, this is the perfect opportunity because I can understand how a digital media company even creates the structure, right? So I agreed and I went for a year and I, you know, it was really, um, I said I would launch this vertical for her. Um, she was pregnant at the time and about to have a baby. And, you know, it was the best thing I did, Simon, because I learned a, how to write a grant. We, I wrote the grant that got us over a million dollars from the Gates Foundation. I never, ever would have ever known how to write a grant prior to that, you know. And But more importantly, it taught me how you build audience around a topic, right? And that, to me, was the model I was going for anyway. So dedicating a year, like, although I was really itchy and eager to start something that I could call my own, I realized I probably wasn't ready to do that because I didn't have the skills behind me to know how to do it um, outside the context of a big company. So to me, that was that was instrumental on getting to where I am today is dedicating a year of my time working for a startup and understanding how you fit the pieces together. I, I didn't know that. 
great self-awareness that you were able to figure out that you know there was things you didn't know and you needed to go and learn them and a, and a great discipline to not just jump straight into something and and go and work for a, a startup and give you give you some of those insights and and you know how how fantastic when when you decided to go uh, and work for this startup i mean how is there an element of you that how did you hold back from not just starting it yourself i mean what what was the process there well, what really got me into it was we were talking about actually merging our ideas and taking my idea and having, you know, launching um, the health component um, to, you know, add to the platform that was already there and I would come on as a partner. And, you know, for many reasons, and, you know, it wasn't, it, it was a completely amicable relationship and we have a great relationship even today. Um, uh, the founder is a really good friend of mine. But the timing was, I realized quickly after a year there, the timing wasn't right for them. It didn't make sense for them to launch into health. And the whole reason why I went to work for them was to learn in order for me to launch my own thing. So that became really clear to me, and it became a really easy decision to make because I felt like now I was ready, and if it couldn't be done in partnership with this company that I joined, then I had to do it by myself. Well, I think again, that's a, that's a good process to go through, isn't it? It's a, it's a, you, you. I think partnering up with people is always a good step to try. It certainly can, you know, one plus one equals eleven if you can make it work. So it's, it's good to try that process, and it's good that you can also come to an amicable end without anyone feeling hurt, because that that can be quite a difficult process as well. But how do you split your time right now from, say, Deborah Khan Media and, and being patient and, frankly, all the other amazing things that you're doing, which, again, listeners, I'll list, I'll list in the comments. Um, but, you know, how do you split your time amongst these things? How does it play out? So being patient is part of... We made... Debracon Media is my umbrella company and being patient sits under it. So it's just a product of Debracon Media. And the reason why uh, we did that is because, well, we're, first of all, we decided to be a, a public benefit corp. Um, so we're what, what's known as a B Corp in the U.S. Um, uh, I also have a Hong Kong company, but, um, you know, we're really mission. The reason why I chose um, a B Corp is a benefit, public benefit corp is because um, we're really mission-driven. I mean, the whole reason why I started this is to really create a new formula for health. It, I, I never really got into this saying, oh, I got it. I'm going to be a unicorn and I'm going to make a gazillion dollars. I mean, that to me, in fact, I funded this for my, I, I took money that I had put away and I continued to do media projects for like the Bloomberg and other people. Um, and every cent I made, I put back into to my media company because for very, and you know, some people would, would say, well, you're crazy. Why would you do that? You know, like you should keep the money and then there'll, there'll be other people who will invest in you. Maybe, but to me, I did not want to go out to investors until I understood I had something that really worked. And I purposefully did not spend money on advertising because in today's digital media world, we all know anyone can pay for an audience. That doesn't necessarily mean it's working, right? So for me, it was very important to start off and say, look, I want to know what my audience wants and what they're going to reject. And that's going to make it even better and stronger. So I, I made the very calculated decision to not put a single dime into advertising. And so all of our growth is organic. And I said, I'm going to give it two years. And if I, if I can't attract an audience or if it's pretty flat or, you know, plateaued growth, then I'll know. It was maybe something I wanted to do, but it wasn't right for this world. And that would be fine because I had committed a certain amount of money where it was an experiment. Well, the growth has totally blown me away and just gone beyond my expectations of what we would be. Um, we plotted our growth and it's just like, you know, vertical line up. So to me, that tells me I've created, I mean, it's kind of my own way of testing, what, uh, testing my product, right? Is it worthy or not? Well, you tell me if it's worthy, people are going to come. They're going to, you know, we're going to grow audience. Um, and if it's not, then I'll know. And that's okay because at least I tried. So I always have that in the back of my mind. Like, it's okay if I fail, but I don't want to ask anyone for it. Because to me, it would almost feel, and this might be a journalist and not a businesswoman talking, but 
it felt um, wrong to me to ask people for money for something I wasn't sure was going to work, right? So I just decided this is an amount of money that I could put into this and let's see if it works. And I've proven it. You know, now actually we're just starting to raise money and, you know, go to and get grants and foundations and whatnot. And I have a really great story because I can show them this is something I believe and this is now the proof. And, you know, when you look at our audience growth, I'm so proud of, of, you know, and I always say, like you asked me in the beginning, well, how do you define success? Well, it's actually changed my opinion of how I define failure, right? Because let's say being patient went away tomorrow. I wouldn't call it a failure. We've provided a lot of people with better information than that, what they can get. You know, have I made gazillions of dollars yet? No, but that was never the intent in the beginning. I've never been driven by money per se. Um, so to me, that's not my definition of success. But I know a lot of investors would look at me and say, well, were you successful or not? How much revenue are you drawing? You know, again, it's redefining it. It's like, that's not my, you know, yes, I hope we can draw in major revenue because that's what's going to feed the editorial and keep it alive and independent, right? We need to find a revenue source that actually pays for our journalists and pays for the quality journalism that we're offering people. But it's never been about, oh, I have to make massive profits, otherwise I'm a failure. And I think that actually as an entrepreneur helps you. I mean, in, in a weird way, it helps you because you're not limited to that one benchmark of how much money you're making. I could not agree with you more and it's the reason it's my opening question in my podcast because it's always fascinating to hear you can almost see people's life stages through what they define the success in some respects and so um, I have to say it's not often I get a founder on that doesn't talk about one of the metrics being a financial reward uh, but I think it's refreshing to have you on and hear that view. I think there's a couple of things I'd like to quickly unpack that I think our listeners would find useful. On a practical level, a lot of people might not know what a B Corp is. Can, can you just quickly explain that? Because I think a lot of people I know out there that want to start businesses that are purpose-driven don't quite know how to structure it up. They always think of an NGO model or, or they think of a limited company that gives all its profit away. Can you, but can you explain quickly? I think it's a U.S. structure for a start, isn't it? Yeah. Corp is one which you hold your mission accountable, right? So your board and everyone judges you according to the metrics you set according to your mission, right? It's not necessarily a financial goal. Um, our mission is to really provide people um, um, access to better information on um, single subject um, long-term health conditions. I mean, we're not going to stop at Alzheimer's. Our plan is to replicate the model. Um, across many other um, disease conditions and health conditions out there. So um, really the mission comes before anything else. But the structure is actually much like a C-Corp, right? It's a, it's, it's a for-profit company. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny, Simon, because when I first embarked on this, I said, oh, well, naturally this is going to be a nonprofit. And all of my friends who started nonprofits told me, do not make this a nonprofit. This is the wrong fit for what you want to do. And I was, like, curious about that. Um, and the reason is because a couple of reasons. One is if I want to scale this, like, what we want to do is replicate the formula across a lot of different topics. Um, to be a nonprofit would take you a long time to do that. Like, you, you know, you need serious investment if you're going to scale and, you, and do it quickly. Um, that was one of the reasons. And the other reason was, uh, you know, nonprofits change your role. Um, and this is a good friend of mine said, you know, you're, you're going to become a fundraiser. And I hate asking people for money. I'm a journalist. You know, I'm, I know I'm going to have to do, I, I am doing it. And I know I have to do it inevitably. But to change my role into really the fundraiser didn't make sense to me. It's, it's, it's what I like least to do, you know. So, um so actually, I followed the model that I learned at News Deeply, which is a public benefit corp, um, which is just basically, look, we exist for our mission. Um, if you invest in us, you're judging us um, by, by mission and our goals with our mission, rather than we're going to grow 20x. And so that's, you know, in some ways it's a label, um, but how you set up the structure of your board and your company um, to make that mission the centerpiece of it 
um, is the big difference between a for-profit, you know, a regular company. Yeah, that's that's a great insight for people out there. I think a lot of people get confused about that, and and I think there's an element of well, um, if there's in any way not a charity registered number, it's hard for you to you know push the concept of help um, within the infrastructure or as as a charity. Which, but then there's a concept, or then you're making profit out of this problem, are you? So you know that that's that's that that must be also some sometimes a conversation you end up in. Well, not really, because we're not making any profit uh-huh. right now. But um, no, like you have to think of it. Like I like the example of Patagonia. You know, the, the yep. outdoor wear company. Yes. Patagonia is a public benefit corp, right? They give a lot back to what they're they're. Uh, so you know, they have a lot of um, um, a lot they invest in the outdoors and giving back to nature mm. and conservation. Yes, that's um, true. But I, bet, so that, I bet a lot of people don't understand that structure, though. A lot of people st- see that as a marketing gimmick for that brand. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm sure maybe people do. Um, it just it really made sense for what we wanted yeah, to do it does, now. It does make sense. I just realized too, if I wanted to scale this and eventually, like you know, under Devercon Media, there are you know, ten, twenty different verticals. Um, you need you need to scale that. You need investment. You know, you're not going to do it as an NGO. It will take you forever to do it. Um, you know, imagine raising money for every single vertical. Mm. Um, so for me, I felt like, and I, I like to move pretty quickly, and I felt like what we need to focus on and what I'm investing in is the formula, right? Mm. And so when we figure out the formula, we're going to be able to replicate it. And that, to me, was the most exciting part. It's like, okay. What can we do differently that doesn't exist and that really highly impacts people? Um, also, the other thing that was funny too is public benefit corp just kept coming up. People were like, "Oh, you're a natural public benefit corp," you know. Mm. So I did a bit of research and I thought, "Yeah, this makes sense." Mm. It's interesting, also, what you said about you know, as as a are you, are you thinking as a journalist when you say you don't want to ask for money and and the whole process of of, of that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I think there is a self-fulfilling element there. If I think back to some of the people that you've interviewed, and I've also been lucky enough to meet, like Uber, uh, Travis from Uber and and the, the Nathan from Airbnb, these guys, you know, if they hadn't asked for money, then they wouldn't be able to grow the business. And, and, and so there's an element of that. Your platform is, I would argue, more important than Uber. I might get some hate for that. Uh, more important <laughs> Airbnb. You, I... I well, I think there's some truth to it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think these are very useful platforms that do some good. But, you know, there is an argument in a hierarchy of what's important, probably helping people through some very difficult situations that they face with some of the problems that you, you're highlighting. You know, it's probably more important than getting a, a, a slightly cheaper taxi somewhere. So, you know, having... Well, and, and actually, if I, I can just add to that. The irony of this is what got me on this journey is I did what everyone else does when they say something they don't know a lot of they Google, right? right? And Googling actually makes it so much worse. Totally. Right? Because everything comes at you at one time. You have heaps of contradictory information and you're left scratching your head saying, who can I believe? Like, like what's the truth? You know, and that was the journalist in mm. me going like, wait a second, we got to sort this out. This is just too confusing, you yeah. know? Well, that's why so, I think, you know, in a way you're, you know, you could be the uh, advanced version of Google could be another way of, uh, I, I do think, I mean, I know myself, if I get a cough or something and I Google right now, I've, I've instantly got coronavirus, no matter how, in many ways I read it, the first 500 things are, you probably got coronavirus or hay fever, you know, it's basically, <laughs> so, so I totally see, you know, the, the, the problem that, and I, I'm just, you know, it's always shocking that it's not already been solved when you see it and the size of it, isn't it? But when, when you think about the, the, the process of building this out, I mean, how far into this are you now? What? So for me, I, I had a very clear goal. The first two years, I said, I'm giving myself two years to grow our platform and figure out the formula. So what we've done is, you know, we really engaged with the community in, on many levels. And so what's unique about being patient is, you know, not, we're not only, we're number one, we're explaining the scientific research to people in a, in, in a language they can understand. We're, we'll never take the contradictions out of research, but what we can do is provide the landscape of, you know, what this study means on the trajectory of finding a cure, et cetera, right? So we really try to over explain it to people. But the other problem that 
existed was one of connectivity. I mean, if you think about health, it's completely siloed, right? Patients and caregivers stick together and they compare notes. They're, most of them are pissed off at their primary care doctors because they're not getting the answers that they need to cope. And researchers, interestingly enough, told us they had not enough connectivity to the caregiving population. So we kind of scratched our head and whiteboarded out like, okay, well, what would it look if these complaints problems created a, a new digital platform? So not only are we informing people, but we're connecting people. So how do we do that? We have weekly live talks um, with experts from around the world. I mean, we all know about the COVID crisis. You know, recently we got um, one of the top doctors at Cleveland Clinic to appear on our platform to talk about COVID and dementia. You know, um, and what's wonderful is we allow, I mean, you know me, Simon, I've been in, an anchor in, in Asia for many, many years, but I actually allow, like, I like our audience questions to dictate where the interview go, goes. It's not a prescription that I'm writing. It's more like, what do they want to know? Because here's a doctor from Cleveland Clinic who's going to give us an hour of his time, so let them get their own questions answered. So we're kind of filling that connection. Um, but more uniquely, um, one of the things, and, you know, uh, appropriate um, to our name is I felt like the patient's perspective, like so much, so many times in health, you have a very um, just didactic approach of this is what you should know, or, you know, this is what I think as a doctor or an expert. And no one is really listening enough to the patient. What does it mean from the per first person perspective to live with this, you know? So we built Being Patient Perspectives, which features the perspective of the patient. We interview the patient just like we interview the experts, right? Um, and, and then again, the caregivers, we have um, a specially dedicated um, first person narrative of caregivers sharing what they've learned on this journey. So what we're doing is we're taking the siloed groups and we're putting them and meshing them together um, for A, both conversation and B, just an exchange and a resource of ideas um, and insights um, along those lines. So that work was working so well. We even went one step further. We've actually added people with early stage Alzheimer's onto our team, both in the editorial team and an advisory team. So, you know, we're giving people a perspective that they're not going to find anywhere else. And to me, I think there's, we're seeing huge value in that, um, in, in terms of looking at the disease from a different perspective, but also understanding where the mistakes are made in diagnosis and where there's misconceptions, um, you know, of, around treatments and living with the disease. So it's packed full of information that even, you know, myself, who's now two years down, down the road, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. I'm learning things all the time um, just by giving everybody a voice um, on the platform. I think it's very interesting what you're saying. Uh, the, 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 it reminds me of startup land where people build businesses and they, they don't ever actually ask the user enough. And the businesses that ask the user what do they need always do so much better. So in a way, you know, the patient is is the customer. <laughs> but I think somewhere along the, the line... And the caregiver. I mean, you know, the, especially in a neurodegenerative disease, I have to say the patient and the caregiver. But, mm. you know, we're also seeing instances where we're actually informing the, the researchers and the experts because the way that um, science is funded, they're all competing for the same dollars. So they don't necessarily share, but they want to know what other people are doing. Mm. So, you know, there's been several occasions where we've seen or we've had researchers ask us to put them in touch with other researchers researchers they found out with um, in our platform and that makes me feel really good too because that means we're just kind of bringing it all together you know collaboration is the name of the game so um, yeah I, I mean we you know I can go on for a really long time in some of the things that we've seen and it's it's really inspiring and that to me too I mean I think that and the the letters that we get from people keeps me going. I'm like, oh, well, you're, you're inspiring. You're inspiring. I think it's amazing what you're doing. Do you think that looking at the, 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 the environment you're in, do, do you feel like 
I mean, tell, tell me about the struggles. Do you get a lot of support? You're a very positive person. I know that. You always find the positive in all of it. But it, 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 what's the process been like? Is it, is it a struggle? Do you get a lot of support? You're in Hong Kong right now. I know you live between Hong Kong and San Francisco. But is Hong Kong supporting you? Do, do you feel like there's awareness of this problem or you're bringing awareness well, to people? So, interestingly enough, I mean, I have such huge ambitions, but I'm also realistic, right? I mean, I think as, a, as an entrepreneur, you need to be realistic. I think I see, and actually, Simon, what helped me a lot is when I was at the journal, I interviewed a ton of entrepreneurs, right? We did, we, we started this, um, uh, uh, Asia, this technology show called Digits, and we would feature innovation in Asia and, and in Silicon Valley and you know, in, in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, what, what I learned pretty quickly from interviewing, you know, hundreds of people was, you know, Oftentimes, it was a great idea, but but the founders, um, their expectations were unrealistic. Whether it was what they promised to investors or um, what they thought they could do in a particular period of time, um, I saw that repeat itself a lot. So I actually had a lot of knowledge on why people fail, and I think that also helped me a lot through all the interviews I had done. And so what you're asking me is, you know, well, what's gone really terribly wrong? Well, I mean, I, I you know, don't, you know, I'm sure that, I mean, I, I hate to even say this because I'm sure that there's something that's going to go terribly wrong, but, <laughs> you know, for the most part, um, I've surrounded myself, like, I, I learned really quickly, admit what you can't do, and it's okay, right? I can't be good at a lot of things, and that's okay, you know, I'm not a business person, I'm a journalist, I, you know, I've never built a business before. But what I did is, and what I learned, was you need to fill in those gaps with people who know that, right? So I have the most incredible team of advisors, um, everyone from scientists to business people to, to business development, um, who are guiding me in that process. And, you know, I will never pretend to know better in certain areas I don't. And I think that's crucial because... If you can't admit what you don't know, it's going to be really hard to succeed, right? And so for me, you know, I I knew that quickly by all the people I interviewed. It was like if you can admit what you don't know, no one's going to blame you. I mean, think of think of how how much work it is to be an entrepreneur. You have to do so many things. I'm wearing so many hats right now. I've never worked so hard in my life, you know, and I'm spread so thinly, but. I am, I, I cannot be good at all of that. It's just, it's not possible. I mean, there's very few people. In fact, I'm not even sure there's a single person that's good at everything, you know? So I think what I would say to other entrepreneurs is just admit your deficiencies right off the bat. No one expects you to be good at everything, but find the right people to fill those gaps in your knowledge and your skills and rely on them you know and that's really really helped me along the way mm. i think i think that's really good advice i think there is an element of a lot of people out there that start a business that can't initially afford to perhaps have help um and i i don't know how you've managed to recruit talent but so, okay well i have to say when you're mission driven a lot of people come totally, to you yeah. and volunteer yeah advice. yeah I mean, we I mean, it is clear, you know, we're building out um, a commercial model that will take, like, basically what we want to do, we're, we're, we're working on a commercial model on two sides. Um, the whole point of developing a commercial model is so that we can expand the journalism and the editorial, you know, mission. So it's, it's for me, um, so, so we're, we're, we're both building a consumer model, and then we're also building um, a more scientific, like we're doing things on the science side to really inspire patients and caregivers um, to participate in science. And so we kind of have this two, two avenue approach to revenue building, um, you know, and we're just, I mean, we're carving it out and we're just really like, we spent a lot of time kind of modeling it out. Um, and that's what we're getting funding for now um, on both sides of it. Um, so you know, stay tuned. We've had some really great meetings. I mean, I just really, I mean, it's, it's kind of surprising, but I'm just embarking on asking people um, for money. Um, I think working at News Corp helped me immensely to figure out how to make a really small amount go a long way because 
you know, News Corp's um, traditional way of doing things is to say, oh, yeah, start it, but we're not going to give you any resources. Mm -hmm. And so you have to get very creative and very innovative. And once they see it work, then they fuel it, right? But you have this period of time, and I've been in and out of News Corp now three times, where you have a period of time where you're given really scrappy resources. I mean, when I walked into the Wall Street Journal, there were two really broken down cameras and, you know, like two people on the team. And I remember, you know, some of my old colleagues saying, are you kidding me? What are you doing? You know, are you crazy? After coming from a broadcast world, but you develop a skill and I got really good at that. And so, and I have to say, I'm so grateful because so many people have given me a ton of time and not charged me at all because they believe in my mission. And that's just the bottom line. They believe in what I'm doing um, and they believe in the value that it's going to bring. So they're willing to to um, volunteer their time. Well, I, I personally think you should ask people for lots of money. So any listeners out there that want to help, maybe we'll find a way, <laughs> put a link down the bottom. You know, at the end of the day, I, I do think what you're doing is what I call a sincere purpose. A lot of people, I was reading the, the, the WeWork story recently and how Adam managed to raise so much money there and a lot of it was a, a false purpose somewhat you know like creating a new way of working well you know coronavirus has created a new way of working we're not going to give it 30 billion dollars are we you know I think I think there is a there is a, there's a point there that you know there's there's, there's sometimes a, a fake purpose and then there's someone that comes along that's doing it sincerely and that's what I see in you so I'm very proud of you I'm proud to know you I think I think it's amazing look I, I always think these podcasts I could talk to you forever uh, and I I mean I really enjoy uh, getting your insights but I, I also know people don't have all day so I thought maybe just to kind of cap off um, t- tell us a little bit about you know if you if you went back to your younger self and gave some advice given what you know now and how 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 purpose-driven you, you are right now you know would, would you give yourself uh, any any particular bit of advice I think I I had a problem underselling what I could do I think I'm I I take a very cautious approach to things because I don't ever want to promise people things I can't deliver on and so I feel like through my the course of my career at times I undersold what I could deliver um, and I think that hurt me in certain ways. Um, so I guess my, my advice would be to really have confidence in your abilities, right? It's, it's, I didn't lack, I mean, I'm not saying I wasn't confident in what I could do or who I was, but I think in certain aspects of my career, I probably understood what I could deliver. And, you know, that's great in some ways because then you, you achieve and people are like, are, are very impressed. But I, I think personally, um, you know, it, it could have ha- it, it it hurt me um, in in several instances, and so it's really just having the confidence to believe in yourself and your abilities. And in in some ways, I had to go through that to get to the point that I am now, in order to jump off the cliff and basically say I'm going for it. And you know, I think I got to a point in my career where it's like I don't care if I fail, so what? So every a lot of people fail. Like I have nothing to lose, and that to me was a really, really refreshing point to be in in life because all of a sudden, all of the anxieties and insecurities and fears that you once held are suddenly released. And now I'm finding out the world is my oyster and, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going as far as I possibly can. Um, I, I don't think I always knew that and I'm not sure a lot of young people would get for that. So I think that's just the natural um, evolution of, of learning mm. but i think you're touching on something really interesting there I just i just want to go deeper for a second and I, I think it's a problem a lot of people have um i like to think a lot of people have and i have seen it in a lot of people is it's almost like a moral code dilemma where there's a piece of you that really believes that this platform not only will do good but can do good and will deliver if anyone gets involved and you know has expectations it will deliver and, and as I said earlier it's a self-fulfilling thing if you don't get the support and the money etc in then you can't deliver on what you know the potential it has but you don't want to oversell and you know damage your reputation uh, uh let people down and and so there's this kind of undersell which could accidentally if not uh, carefully managed uh, mean that you don't get what you need and therefore it doesn't succeed. I think, you know, the WeWorks of this world have done it the opposite way. 
<laughs> you know, they, they've oversold and that has come back to bite them. And now I guess we're all super cautious that we don't ever want to be put in that basket. That being said, I mean, WeWork still exists, mind you, and it still uh, has a has a legacy, like it or not. Adam is a billionaire, you know. So, so there is there is there is a counter argument, isn't there? There's something for people to think about out there. I think pushing back against, you know, I, I, my my view on it is because I'm a salesperson. My my view on it is, if you really believe in what you're doing, then sell it hard. And you know, yeah. if it's sincere, it's not a trick. You're not trying to trick anybody. You are sincere about it, and it fails. Then so be it. It's all about whether or not you can sleep at night, and you're being truthful, isn't it? So I don't know how Adam at WeWork sleeps at night. I'm not sure, but you know, maybe he really believed in what he was selling. You know, and I think I can see it in you. You definitely, definitely believe in what you're selling. I would shout from the rooftops. In fact, I'd like to help you do it. Uh, I think I think yeah. you sh- you should you should. But I don't know what you feel. Is is there a conflict there? There is. Do, do you see what I mean? Is there a conflict with what? With what? moral code of not wanting to oversell because you have a good moral code and you don't want to overpromise, and and yeah, then, and I pushing mean, back on that a bit and saying, well, you know, I'll take a risk here. So you know what's interesting? Um, I've just really started this journey with like asking people to fund. Like we're going after you know grants and um, you know uh, we're not going after venture money. We're nowhere near that. Um, but we're looking for you know personal investors or um, or or foundations, um, grant money, that type of thing. So I haven't until probably the last few weeks, and it's all been on Zoom, of course, um, really had the opportunity to tell people what we're doing. And I was just saying this to one of my advisors because, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you get so far down in your rabbit hole. Like my fears have been... Maybe I think what we're doing is incredible and great, but actually maybe it's not that great, you know, because you lose perspective. You can't look at yourself objectively anymore because you're so far deep into the the weeds. And so um, what's been amazing to me is, you know, the last three meetings I've had, I've had incredible reactions from people who were asking to support us. And um, I haven't even, I hadn't even tested that water yet so I didn't know what the reaction was going to be but to me I felt like wow that's really validating if you know you get people who are you know you have an organization where people are asking them for money all the time you know you you were promised 30 minutes and you end up with an hour and 15 minutes of their time because they're captivated by your story right and they think what you're doing is worthwhile so to me I'm I'm finding Asking people for money, not so painful, which I was really terrified of doing because it's validating that we are doing something unique and people are listening and they're sitting up and they're asking lots of questions. And so in, in a weird way, it's kind of making me feel better. You yeah. know? Well, that's, that's <laughs> wonderful to hear. I, I think, again, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I, a lot of startups, I tell them sometimes, raising money, you can see it as a way of validating what you're doing. And don't, don't yeah. see it as asking money, seeing it as a way of getting feedback because people giving money, they're definitely very critical before they do that. You know, people are very honest about it. But if you just tell someone in the street, I'm doing this, but, oh, that's lovely. You ask them for 10 pounds because you're doing this, then they'll, then they'll either walk away because you're weirdo or want to know more, you know, and, and that's good. That's a good stress test, right? And I don't think, I think the, the money I invested for the first two years was well worth it because it created the data points that I needed to prove to people that were moving the needle. And without that, I'm not sure it would have been as strong or compelling a story, you know, because I, I have, I come armed with heaps of proof that what we're doing is moving the needle, needle in a lot of different areas. Mm. And, you know, taking that time and investment to prove that I think was well worth the investment. Yeah, well, building the foundation of the platform makes a lot of sense in that in that context. Why not do a crowdfunding campaign? I'm sorry. Why not do a crowdfunding campaign? Well, we are. We have a donation page up, um, but what we're doing now is we're going to do a contribution campaign. So um, we're using um, we're, we're, with each piece of content you see, we're going to ask people to contribute and. If they want more access to experts, um, you know, we're building an Ask the Expert Anything platform um, that's more like um, instead of Ask Me Anything, it's more Ask the Expert Anything dedicated to um, brain health and and dementia. And so we're going to give people more access 
to premium products if they want to subscribe. Otherwise, we're saying just contribute or just don't. You know, we're not putting a gun to people's heads and saying you, we're we're blocked. You know, I I had a hard time. I didn't want to put everything behind a paywall because that to me was not true to our mission, which is to give more people better information. And so, um, but on you know, but there are ways that we can add an extra layer to access um, that we could charge people a little bit of money for and see if they're, they're willing to pay. Um, but, you know, right now we have a contribution campaign. Um, maybe I should just do a full out, you know, GoFundMe or something. I don't know. I, I you know, I, I just haven't really had, I mean, I thought about it, but I just haven't put it to practice. Well, look, um, it's been wonderful chatting to you. I've really enjoyed it. That um, For anyone listening out there, we'll, we'll put all the information on what Deborah's doing in the links below. You can also donate. I think that would mean a lot to Deborah and, and to her community. So uh, please support in any way you can. I want to just sum up some of the things I've taken away from, from our chat. Uh, I, I love the point you made a few times and it's it's very very important people uh, understand it is admit what you don't know i think that's such a great takeaway and such a good point i think getting experience via others is also a, a brilliant way of learning i mean i i personally have dyslexia so I, I can't read books so instead i ask people what they thought of that book i get 17 views on the same content so you know basically getting that insight can I mean i instead of reading that book i've got 17 different views on the same content that that sort of experience learning that, that deborah went through where she invested a year working in another meaningful business another purposeful business and learning along the way via that investment i think is just a tremendous uh, bit of advice I believe don't undersell, and I think that's something a lot of people struggle with. I'm, I'm married to a creative person who's incredibly talented. She never wants to tell anybody what she's done, and so you know I, I can relate to the problem. And I think Deborah's point there that that you know, that, that push and pull, going back to her younger self and maybe being a little bit more pushy, uh, is, is good advice. So. That, I, I, again, thank you, Deborah, for your time. Thanks for coming on. We didn't get to talk about luck which is a fantastic thing. I mean, we are the Good Luck Club, but we've had such a great time talking about everything else. We don't need to talk about luck today, but I feel lucky to have had you on the show. I feel lucky to have known you, and I think the universe is lucky to have you working on this, this stuff right now. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Simon. Thanks so much for your time and for your questions and really featuring being patient. So appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you for listening to the Good Luck Club podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to and you've chosen us. We, of course, feel lucky. If you want to hear more, please go to thegoodluckpod.com or go to any of our social media pages and share with us your views, your insights and any way that we can improve what we're doing to make it a better experience for you. We wish you the best of luck.